Uh, We've got the Acts reading from the book of Acts, chapter 16, starting with verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and leading city that, of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. The word of the Lord. Uh, Also from the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, starting with verse 10 of chapter 21. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Uh, The gospel reading is from uh, the... Gospel of John, chapter 14, starting with verse 23. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to make them, uh, come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, You would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you all mind if I sit while I do this? You notice there are no other Wallies here? I tried to hide from them that I was preaching, but they found out. So, yeah, Preston is uh, 
with his family in uh, Oklahoma and uh, talked to him several times this morning, things we didn't know how to do. So I um, <clears throat> would much rather him ask Ian to do this, but <laughs> I'm happy to be here. And uh, I am, uh, uh, I'll get to that later. Uh, this is uh, something that I am always willing to do for Preston, and I appreciate his trust. Um, but it's a little scary. Preaching is a little scary. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Erwin um, McManus. I'm an old guy, and it's hard to know all the contemporary names that y'all know. Erwin McManus is of my generation. Um, but he preached famously from uh, this curious passage in the Gospel of Mark about the blind man from Bethsaida being healed. And what he said has fascinated me for a while, and it's been both a caution and an encouragement to me. Uh, the story that he preaches goes like this. Uh, Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, and while they were there, a group of people came to him bringing this blind man. And they're begging Jesus to touch the blind man and to heal him. So Jesus spits in the man's eyes and then places his hand on the man. For some reason, this scene appeals to my senses, maybe because we don't spit in people's eyes and touch people to heal them very often. It's not our common procedure, but it catches me up in the story. I easily reading this story feel like I'm there and I, I feel the dust on my feet as I stand nearby watching the, these curious proceedings. Uh, my eyes are fixed on Jesus and I forget the arid surroundings. I feel the spit under my own thumbs as I watch Jesus place his hands over the man's eyes and momentarily Jesus asks, do you see anything? And then suddenly I'm back to myself and I'm reading my Bible and reasoning. <clears throat> this is a pretty curious question. I think to myself, Jesus has the power to make blind eyes perceive light and color and shape and distance. When moments before there were nothing more than orbs filling space on this man's face. And he has to ask him, presumably after healing him, if he could see anything. Did Jesus not know without asking of course he did, right? And then I'm stumbling over my own thoughts more than engaging in the story. And then the man's answer snatches me out of my chair and back into the crowd and people are moving all around them. Most of them unaware that Jesus is who he is and that he's doing what he's doing. But in my head, it's Jesus and the surely no longer blind man and me. I've lost all awareness of everyone else in the story until the man looks up and says in answer to Jesus' question, I see people. They look like trees walking around. I do my best to resist the questions rushing uninvited into my head, like, has he had sight before? How does he know what people look like, or trees for that matter? Did Jesus' healing not work completely? Would this man have to live with this tease of vision for the rest of his life? My questions are interrupted by Jesus lifting his hands to the man's eyes 
and began touching them. This time the man's eyes are opened, his sight is restored, and he sees everything clearly. What is this? Jesus didn't know how much power to apply to dead eyes to make them see. Why did Jesus ask that question when he knew the state of the man's vision after the first time he touched the man's eyes? What was this second touch about? Well, Erwin McManus says that this is not a case of Jesus in the middle of a medical procedure and not quite sure how it's going. This question, do you see anything, is a question of intent. But what is Jesus' intent? It may be that Jesus did this for the man and for every observer around. Perhaps it is true that Jesus wants us to know that healing is often a process. That not all healing, though some, is instantaneous. Do you know people who were brought to Christ and that day they stopped smoking or cheating or getting drunk? Do you also know people who were won over by the saving grace of Jesus yet struggled with porn or rage or the love of money for years despite the grace shown them and the faithfulness of praying friends? Those are the questions we ask of other people, but from the inside we start thinking, God really changed my heart about this or that, but I'm still struggling over here with this as much as I ever have. God powerfully healed my unforgiving spirit but I'm as selfish as I've ever been. I love God, but I'm struggling to love his people. Since God touched me, patience feels more natural, but my temper still has a mind of its own, or something like these things. God touches us, and in some areas we see what is. In other areas we see what isn't, and yet in other areas we seem still to be blind. Let me diverge here a bit and tell you that McManus preaches a beautiful sermon about this. But I'm not here to preach his sermon. In fact, this isn't part of my message, we'll call it. This is just part of the longest introduction to a message that you've probably ever heard. (laughs) And it's not over yet. (laughs) We are all in process and sometimes we think we see all that we're supposed to see but we're not seeing everything God ultimately intends to reveal to us. I attended many a class in graduate school with students who argued with seasoned professors and fellow students alike. They had been brought to Jesus and seemed to think that the trees they saw were the truth. More and more healing comes into our lives, and with healing comes wisdom, clarity, we might call it. I sometimes struggle in all of this intro to say this before we look at John 14. I I struggle with sermons in which it seems as though the one preaching in a state of elevated emotion is pointing and telling me to see the trees. Absent continued healing, the one preaching had received the first touch and then ran off to the world with what unfocused truth they saw. Trees! Trees, see the trees. And people walked away believing in trees and never saw clearer vision. I was talking about this earlier with some of y'all. I, 
I suppose a person who preaches is in some sense a preacher, but as I am often wont to say, and maybe too often, um, that in the more traditional understanding of preacher, I'm not one. And that's not because I don't want to be associated with them. I'm just apologizing ahead of time. But that's not the more serious point. What I want you to hear is that in areas of my life, I still see trees. In other areas, I still seem blind. And to stand here and tell you how to live, what God's Word says, and what it means, and what Christian spirituality looks like, that can be really scary. That feels like a heavy responsibility. So for that reason, and maybe one or two less noble reasons, I don't want to tell you how to do anything. I don't want to declare that trees are what God is saying to you. I want to talk out of what healing from God I've received and invite you to consider it. God may be using the trees I see to touch you and give you greater clarity than what I know to share with you. Let me go one step further. (laughs) Still introduction. The blind man knew enough about trees to know they didn't walk, and he knew enough about people to know they didn't look like trees. We all carry contradictions in our beliefs. We all know there's no right way to do the wrong thing, but sometimes we live as if there is anyway. God may be ready to heal and bring together those contradictory messages in a great understanding of his heart toward you and his will for you. It is a process. You're in it. And he still spits into blind and partially sighted eyes and touches them with his hands. I pray he'll do that today or tomorrow as you wrestle with something you heard me say or a year from now when someone else says it differently and the familiarity with truth has a stronger connection. I think this morning's gospel passage invites us into a few things that can cause us to sense the hands of God on our eyes, and this time helping us to see people where once there were trees. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to briefly uh, invite you to consider a few possibilities in the John 14 passage. Let's pray together. In the meeting of our lives, God, be the focus of all that we are. In our singing of your praise, the prayers that we'll make, the reading of your word, the preaching of the same, speak to us, encourage us, forgive us, and open our eyes to greater and greater understanding of what you are doing to us so that you can work in us to do through us what you delight to do for your people for the sake of your kingdom. In the meeting of our lives, Lord, be the focus of all that we are. Amen. Let me quickly reread uh, the John 14 passage. It's just uh, several verses. Jesus is speaking to Judas, uh, not Judas Iscariot. He's speaking to Judas who's asked him a question and he really doesn't ask, answer the question, but it seems to be okay with everybody. Uh, Jesus answered Judas and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. And if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. These words spoke deeply to me this week of hope. I read them several weeks ago in preparation for today, and I I didn't see the hope. But a momentary crisis invited itself into my routine, and I gained some perspective on these verses, these principles, and I heard and I felt the hope. We've all likely heard that we can study the Word and not grow in likeness of Christ. We may learn facts of historical event or the names of all the fruits of the Spirit, but we may not possess any of them. The point of relationship with God beyond our salvation is to love Him, to love God, to obey Him as a means of showing Him our gratitude, grateful obedience, not begrudging rules-keeping. The Israelites were chastised more than once for making laws where there were no laws. And I don't want to make that mistake here this morning. For example, if we look at verse 23, we can conclude two things. First, people who love God obey Him. And second, people who do not obey God do not love Him. And those things may be generally true, but it's not a hard, fast law. Or we'd have a problem with Paul's argument about the law of sin at work in us when we do things we don't want to do. So I'd like us to consider the possibility that Jesus is here pointing out the connection between growing love for God and deepening obedience to Him. Between God's love for us and His making a home in us. Obedience is not how we're saved in the sense of being rescued, as the scripture says, from the dominion of darkness and being brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But obedience is one of the clearest ways that we cooperate with God. We show our submissive trust in Him and invite continued transformation. I was taught to believe that there's salvation, which was essentially escaping hell. And then there's discipleship. But often the way that the certainty of salvation or the escaping of hell is taught, the obedience that shows gratitude doesn't seem to draw us as much. Are we Christians? We would respond with yes. But it seems wise to remember that we are and we're always in the process of becoming one. Grateful obedience invites God's presence with us. And His presence gives us hope. 
And who doesn't need hope today? Another phrase in this section of Mark's gospel gives me hope. Verse 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that, you, that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is our partner in remembering what God has said to us. In the dailiness of day-to-day living, routine can numb our thinking into repetitious patterns, orbits of thought that tend to go nowhere but in the same circle over and over to nothing new or fresh, just a spiraling downward into troubled and fearful thoughts. Then there are those moments when God breaks in and truth is like a booster rocket getting us out of the orbit we seem to be stuck in. And the newness brings hope of landing in a better pattern than the orbit we had settled into. God's call to us is always higher, always closer to Him, and always more hope-filled than any of our tired planting of old seeds that had no new life in them. When the Holy Spirit aids us in remembering what we've been taught, if we then line up our lives with His teaching, we have more reason to hope than before. We know the Holy Spirit is the comforter, not only from Scripture, but our experience teaches us that. As a person who works daily with people whose lives look other than they thought they would, hope is a great comfort. And who among us doesn't need some comforting these days? Lastly, which tells you that my introduction was longer than the message. Let me point to Jesus' words about leaving us his peace. My peace, he says. Not peace like the world gives us. But what kind of peace exactly does the world give us? Jesus doesn't tell us that clearly in this passage. But we know it's not complete because Jesus' implication is that his peace is greater than the world's peace, which turns out not really to be peace at all. Worldly peace is rooted in what we can figure out, how we can learn to put up the right defenses around the wrong people. It's rooted in being smarter, cleverer, more evolved as a person than the next guy. The peace Jesus gives us is rooted in his flawless character, in his completed work, in his kept promises, and in his ability to keep them. God is God and we are not. His thoughts and ways are higher than, higher than ours. He knows what I do not know. He does what I cannot do. And to bring us back around to the introduction, he sees what we cannot see. And in all of that, he loves me and lives in me and in you. And that brings me peace. And who doesn't need a little peace in today's world? I mentioned being old. <clears throat> um, I appreciated the hymn this morning. I, I love contemporary worship songs. I love hymns. And I have been for years a student of hymns. And there's a hymn that I will be surprised if any of you have ever heard that I'd, I'd like to quote this morning. 
It's called How Tedious and Tasteless the Hours. Have you ever heard that? Yes. <laughs> it says, How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, which is an old-fashioned word for hope or possibilities or things that we look for. Sweet prospects, sweet birds, and sweet flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain to look gay. But when I am happy in him, December is as pleasant as May. How is your May? Did you experience much hope, much comfort, much peace? You need it. The God who loves us and comes to make his home in us is a faithful companion, guide, host, and friend. Gratefully walk in his word. It's not magic, it's promise. Wait in his presence and in his word in grateful obedience. I'm going to take just a second here because I, wasn't, I didn't get to be here last week when um, the church celebrated its fifth birthday. But I watched the video and saw people talking about what it's like to be here. The scripture says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And this is my favorite place to not forsake the assembling of myself together with other people. I, I love this church. Um, I love being part of sacrament. I, I always dreamed of a church where you could wake up in the morning and people would start gathering at your house and they'd bring food and we would sit down and, and eat together and we would share the scriptures together and pray together. And this is the closest thing I've ever found to that. Um, Whittier wrote a, a, a very lengthy poem about the um, experience of um, worship. I, I'm, I've absolutely gone blank there. Whittier uh, wasn't writing about the Mennonite experience, but the Quaker experience. Thank you. Um, they don't call it worship. They, they refer to their gatherings, but they, many years ago, the Quakers uh, did away with um, clergy. And um, uh, one of the, the man who was president of the Quaker fellowship, whatever, was once uh, asked about their decision to um, do away with clergy. And his response says, we didn't do away with clergy, we did away with the laity. And what he meant in that, obviously, was that they believed that every person was a minister. So it's not uncommon in that in culture. You come to a gathering and you sit. There are people on either side of you and you sit and you wait for someone who has a word to share with the group. So Whittier writes a very lengthy poem about this, and I'm just gonna excerpt these four lines from it that remind me of why this church is so important to me. And it says, and so I find it well to come for deeper rest to this still room. For here, the habit of the soul feels less the outer world's control. And from the silence multiplied by these still forms on either side, the world that time and sense have known falls off and leaves us, God, alone. 
I'm grateful for sacrament and uh, grateful to be part of you folks.